Chapter 10 Justice From Punishment to Restoration And what of justice? Sin may be an errant step, but it is still violation of a law. And does not that warrant punishment? Every transgression of the law deserves punishment, declares a representative Protestant handbook. As far back as the early 5th century, Pelagius was lamenting the direction in which such thinking was taking the church. Oh, horror, he writes. We ascribe iniquity to the righteous and cruelty to the holy, so that God seems to have sought not so much our salvation as our punishment. As mortals, we have a strong sense of justice, which is often just a thin veneer covering our own desire for vicarious retribution. Sometimes there isn't even a veneer. As the English theologian William Paley wrote, By the satisfaction of justice, I mean the retribution of so much pain for so much guilt, which we expect at the hand of God, and which we are accustomed to consider as the order of things that perfect justice dictates and requires. Of course, as Friedrich Nietzsche pointed out, the perverse logic of this mathematical conception assumes that the pleasure of retribution is needful to cancel out the pain of the offence. Worlds hang in the balance when definitions of justice are at stake. One scholar notes how a definition of justice as retributive punishment is deeply ingrained in our cultural practices. The criminal justice system of the United States operates on the principle of retribution. This system operates under the assumption that doing justice means to inflict punishment which is understood as violence. The assumption is that small crimes require small penalties, while a big crime requires a big penalty. The biggest punishment, namely death, is reserved for the most heinous crimes. The assumption of retributive justice, that doing justice means meeting out punishment, is virtually universal among North Americans. And the roots of retributive justice, as we have seen, are thoroughly religious, embedded most particularly in the Protestant theology of atonement. There is something mean-spirited about the way we generally employ the term justice, not only because it often conceals a human thirst for retribution, but also because we use it as a form of self-validation. Christian theologians and preachers openly profess that part of heaven's joy would include our ability to see the suffering of the damned in hell, in order that the happiness of the saints may be more delightful to them and that they may render more copious thanks to God for it, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned, wrote Thomas Aquinas. Alerting us to related motivations, Jesus warned against the elder brother of the prodigal son syndrome. In the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, we see the petty indignation of the long-time workers who are resentful that their latecomers receive the same pay. In the story of Jonah, we see the prophet on the front row to witness Nineveh's destruction. Both of these stories are about the demand for recognition, status or preeminence, masquerading as the call for justice. Owen Barfield sees what is happening here. Jesus is deliberately outraging our deep-rooted feeling for the goodness of justice and equity because we are being beckoned towards a position directionally opposite to the usual one, because we are invited to see the earth, for a moment at all events, 
rather as it must look from the sun, to experience the world of man as the object of a huge, positive outpouring of love in the flood of whose radiance such trifles as merit and recompense are mere irrelevancies. Dostoevsky pointed out the fruitlessness of justice as retribution. As his character Ivan cries out to his brother, What use is vengeance to me? What use to me is hell for torturers? What can hell put right again? I don't want anyone to suffer any more. This is the topic that occupies Alma in his great discourse on this subject, delivered to his troubled son Coriantan. Why, his son wonders, must punishment follow misconduct? Especially because, as we discussed previously, God is not affronted by anything we can do. Their honour is not threatened, and they do not demand our punishment. As Paul taught, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Julian of Norwich wisely wrote that it is Satan's meaning to make us so heavy and so sorrowful in this that we are not able to see the blessed beholding of our everlasting friend. Our falling does not prevent him from loving us. The false traditions of the fathers are unflagging in their assertions that punishment is God's justice. The Book of Mormon, however, gives us a radically different way to think about justice, and the central concept in that scriptural framework is agency. No other religious tradition has made agency so central to its theological understanding. God gave unto man that he should act for himself. But that freedom to choose is always the freedom to choose something. Armour calls this principle, the principle by which every choice brings about a consequence that is tied to it, the plan of restoration, because we shall have restored to us that which we most desire. As we manifest our desires of happiness or desires of good, then we are raised to happiness or good accordingly. Julian of Norwich wisely perceived that in most of us is a godly will that never assents to sin, nor ever shall. Pico della Mirandola, who loved this same principle, exclaimed, O great and wonderful happiness of man! It is given to him to have that which he desires, and to be that which he wills. It is precisely this principle that the Book of Mormon calls the justice of God. In this essential regard, Justice works in our favour. Justice is the principle by which God assures us that they will stand as surety behind this law of restoration. And this explains why Latter-day Saint scripture twice refers to such agency as a supernal gift. As B. H. Roberts wrote, This inexorableness of law is at once both its majesty and glory, because within its domain we can choose with full sense of security, safety, and rational faith. Because of the law of restoration, we can be assured that we will have good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. While it is true that to choose to indulge a desire is to choose its fruit, bitter or sweet, Accountability depends upon, as Lehi taught, their being instructed sufficiently to understand what they are choosing. But the crucial caveat is this. 
Never in this life do we attain to perfect understanding and a will utterly uncontaminated by all kinds of white noise. And yet, noted the early Christian Maximus the Confessor, the natural will within us, which is the rational ground of our whole power of volition, must tend only toward God as its true end. The rational soul cannot really will the evil as truly evil. In short, sin requires some degree of ignorance, and ignorance is by definition a diverting of the mind and will to an end they would not naturally pursue. This is why, when we use our agency wrongly, it creates an occasion for God's mercy to enter in, not because our guilt is excused, but because our guilt is seldom entire in the first place. This is a recognition of seismic significance. As our desires evolve in more righteous directions, our choices become wiser and more informed by truth and light and love. We become more accountable as our agency grows more refined. Our heavenly parents thus assume a very different role in the drama of human choice and consequence. They counsel, educate, inform, instruct, guide, and encourage us to make those choices that will eventuate in the sweet rather than the bitter. John assigns this task of guiding and encouraging principally to the Holy Spirit, who will teach us all things and serve as our comforter along the journey.